For the KPFK News Minute, I'm Ernesto Arce. Supporters of ex-Bolivian President Evo Morales are calling on the international community to end what they call a massacre of mostly indigenous protesters who have opposed the coup in their country. They say the U.S. is behind efforts to destabilize their nation and foment violence against supporters of the ousted socialist government. More than 500 new emergency shelter beds will open beginning this morning to offer protection to homeless people from the rain and cold temperatures forecast for the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti says the shelters will be located at various city recreation and parks facilities and one church, with Los Angeles County funding services. City recreation and park staff will be present to support the operation alongside outreach and homeless service professionals. The Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority spokesperson says that by Friday, another 100 temporary beds will be opened at Athens Park and 100 beds will be added to the year-round shelters that the authority operates. And forecasters say more rain is on the way this afternoon and tomorrow, and in the mountains, snow will reach up to two feet in parts of the San Gabriel Mountains. The weather has also led to increased traffic and delays on one of the busiest travel days of the year. CHP officers will be out in force over the Thanksgiving weekend looking for motorists driving while impaired or violating other traffic laws. The agency's maximum enforcement period begins tonight and continues through Sunday night. Police critics say saturation patrols are too costly, while focusing on ticket quotas more than keeping the roads safe. Please support our brand of progressive journalism by donating at kpfk.org today. We'll have more at 6.15 p.m. Hello, KPFK. This is Vic Jaramie, editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. Welcome to our Thanksgiving special. Today we have a very special distinguished guest with us, uh, actor, activist, environmentalist, Ed Begley Jr., a man that's been coined environment's best friend, rightfully so. We are going to celebrate Thanksgiving week and uh, to show our gratitude, talk about everything that's right in the world. And um, I'm glad to say that a lot of things are right with the environmental movement. A lot can be changed, but uh, things are happening, and uh, no better person can tell us that than um, the man himself, Ed Begley Jr. And for those of us that, uh, or those of you, I should say, that might not be familiar with Ed's work, at least all of it, uh, Ed is not just a renowned actor, but he is, he is uh, you know, he's at the forefront of the environmental movement, and he has been before most of us sort of knew about it, and most of us uh, saw that in vogue. So I'm going to read you a little bit about Ed's background and what he's up to. And he's an actor, an activist, a change maker. He's been a trailblazer and a proactive champion for environmental causes for decades before it was vogue. While bringing awareness to the importance of green living, this eco-activist has been personally practicing progressive, sustainable ideas in his daily life for decades, with hundreds of films and TV shows listed on his Hollywood resume, Perhaps this is his biggest role. Ed is a respected and prominent figure in the Green Movement, is considered one of the first activists to put the idea of environmentalism on the map with the mass public. Uh, he was basically green before it was cool to be green. Help me to welcome Ed Begley Jr. and uh, happy Thanksgiving week to everyone. Thank Hi, you, Vic. It's so good to be here to be with you again here in the beautiful San Fernando Valley where I grew up. And we had a lovely night in Burbank with uh, Turtle, that great group that is making non-plastic straws. So I thank you for that and thank you for today. It's great to be here at P KPFK, station I listen to often, always has important information that they disseminate very well to the people that need to hear it in the L.A. area and around the country, around the world. So uh, I like the idea of talking about a lot of the good news in the environment, and there's much good news to celebrate. But I don't want to—I don't want people to think I'm delusional. We, of course, as you mentioned in your introduction, we have real challenges too. That, Absolutely, that we could focus on, and that could be the subject of many shows. But uh, today, we're going to talk about some of the good news, and I think that's important to do too. Otherwise, sometimes some people walk away with a, "Well, screw it. What can I do then?" You know, right. we're, we're lost. There's nothing that can be done. If you don't remind people of the successes that we've had, you're going to just have more failure because people need to know that as well. That's part of the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people get hope that, you know, every single person and everything that we do um, 
uh, makes a difference. And it's, as you said, it's important to remind people that it is making a difference. So, you know, before we get into some of the more noteworthy news items and developments, I want to hear about your recent achievements and your recent uh, work and some of the, the, the ongoing things that you're doing. I'd love to talk about that, Vic. Um, there's been a lot of good news lately that I would like to remind people of. I've, I've heard, and I hope it's true, that Greta Thunberg is in town. She's in L.A. right now as we speak. So I'm going to go to City Hall when we're done here. I heard she's going to be there. I hope that's true. I hope that's a, a real report. But I'm happy to take the subway down there anyway and see the lovely ride downtown. But um, that gives me the most hope to see what the young people are doing, led by this courageous young lady. You know, it it just tells you that we, we might just save more than we thought we were going to save. And to be clear, there's some stuff that we will not be able to save. There's many plant and animal species that sadly, no matter what we do now, we can't save everything because of the amount of CO2 that's in the pipeline, because of the amount of heat and acidification in the oceans, all that stuff. If we stopped using fossil fuels tomorrow, there will be, unfortunately, some damage that will occur. But that's not a reason to say, well, screw it. What sh- why should I do anything? That's a reason to do even more, to save what's left. Right. We should redouble, triple our efforts, and, and uh, that's what I intend to do. It's what I've been trying to do since 1970. How much easier would it have been, though, of course, if we had listened to James Hansen in the late 80s when he was talking about climate change? A NASA scientist saying, this is real, this is happening, and here are some of the worst-case scenario, the middle road, and uh, not so bad. And so uh, you should you know, plan for the worst and, you know, and, and, and try to act accordingly. We didn't do that. We didn't do it in the 80s. We didn't do it in the 90s. We didn't do, didn't do it in the 2000s. Now here we are, almost 2020, and uh, there's going to be damage, but we have to save what we can, and there's much to be saved and many success stories to point to. So when you're ready for that, I want to make sure and remind people of some of the good news. Yeah, so uh, before we move on, you know, I'm glad you brought up, uh, brought up Greta Thunberg because what a difference she's made, her speech Huge. in front of the U.N. Uh, and, and what's occurred afterward. It's, it's really uh, woken up a lot of people, including some uh, skeptics, but it's definitely um, sort of elevated the movement to, to new heights. Uh, a teenager, and if I was reading yesterday actually that, that she turned down an award uh, because she thought, um, you know, it's, it's time. She's more focused on politicians listening to environmentalists and activists like yourself. So it's, she's really making such a huge difference and is inspiring people, even you know, Jane Fonda, who's been protesting and getting arrested every week, has said that she's inspired by Greta. So, we all are. Yeah. Uh, to a man, to a woman, we are impressed and uh, buoyed by her activism and uh, her, her words and her deeds. Absolutely. So tell us more of, you know, things that I may not even know that's been happening because, you know, you're the guru. You're very kind to say that. Of course, there are great leaders that came before me and many that have worked alongside me, many that have come after, like Greta. But uh, John Muir, of course, was doing incredible work many years ago. He started the Sierra Club. Rachel Carson with Silent Spring changed the world with that book. Um, You know, there's been many, many people that have done incredible things for the environment, about the environment, to be celebrated. But um, what has happened since 1970 Many challenges have occurred, of course, with climate change and what have you. But look what we did just in the city of L.A., not just the city, but the whole Los Angeles air basin. From 1970 to date, Vic, we have four times the cars in L.A., millions more people, but we have a fraction of the smog. Correct. That's unbelievable. And that happened not just with personal activism like me driving an electric car in 1970. That was a small little drop in the bucket. But the big things of along with personal responsibility and personal action, which I've tried to do. There's also corporate responsibility, and there's government action, legislation, good laws. And make no mistake about it, the way that we clean up the air in L.A. was the full enforcement of the Clean Air Act. That's what did it. That's what we kept different green groups, kept suing the air district, what have you, and others. With the help of the American Lung Association and other experts on air quality and respiratory illnesses, 
I kept saying, you have to abide by it's a law, the Clean Air Act. You have to do it. We're going to sue you. You know, I know you guys are trying to clean up the air. You're good guys there at the air district trying to do it, but we're going to help you by suing you. Will that help you? What What do we need to do? Right. And we did that. So when people talk about with some accuracy, well, we're not going to save it all with, you know, energy-efficient light bulbs and thermostats and Ed riding his bike. They are correct. There's three legs to the table around, around which we must discuss these things, make our plan, and, and put these plans in action. Three legs. You can't have one leg. It's going to tip over. You can't have two. You have to have three. The three legs are personal action, true, corporate responsibility, absolutely, and legislation, like I just said. Those are the three legs, and they all are connected. They all interact. If you buy more green products, if you stop buying the bad guy stuff and buy the good people stuff, that's going to affect corporations. They're going to make decisions accordingly. You boycott this one and help that one. That's going to help them do the right thing. And governments listen when enough people take personal action and do things. And governments certainly listen when corporations do things and are inclined to do greener technologies. The fear when we talked about cleaning up the air in L.A., I wanted to clean it up for many years. That's how I got active in 1970. I lived 20 years, two decades in that horrible smog, Vic. Mm-hmm. And so the fear was, and people said, my, even, my wonderful dad even said, Eddie, I don't want the smog either. I know what you're against. I'm against smog too, but what are you for? How, how do you propose to clean it up? And I'm afraid that if we're going to have progress and jobs and a healthy economy in L.A., that smog just comes with the territory. It came with the London economy back with a piece of smog that they had there. They burned coal. That's how you had that London fog. Right. And it just kind of comes with the territory. We clean up the air in L.A. and businesses thrive. That's what I can't say enough. People made money making catalytic converters that we put on cars. They made money making cleaner power plants. They made money, you know, having things you don't even think of like spray paint booths. You know, they used to do spray paint operations out in the open air practically where all those VOCs, volatile organic compounds, would go up into the L.A. air and make more smog. They don't, they, we stopped them from doing that years ago. You have to do that in what's called a spray paint booth where you keep those, that excess spray inside and you filter it and you contain it. And that's all those things, big and small, the way people even had their backyard barbecues. We said, you're no longer going to use bar- barbecue charcoal lighter fluid. What? You're taking our barbecue. You're a communist. You're un-American. It's horrible. <laughs> no, you can still, if you want your barbecue, you can have it. You can burn your coal briquettes, but you're going to start them with this little chimney thing we're going to sell you, little chimney kind of a, like a pipe with open end. You put newspaper in there, put it in, you start your briquettes that way, and you won't have so much because it all adds up. People right. say, that's a little tiny thing. Why are you bothering people about charcoal lighter fluid? You idiots, leave us alone for God's sake. Spray paint boost, that's nothing. They're all drops and multiple drops and large flows going into that same bucket. Right. And we did all this thing. So now we've done all the big ticket items like cars and factories and stuff like that. Now what we have left is the port of L.A. Have to still clean that up. There's a lot of dirty equipment pulling in in the form of a ship and also unloading and loading those same ships and trains taking that those goods to different parts of the country. All those things. There's lots of smog at the port of L.A. And other, you know, rail transit and other things and shipping areas, these shipping centers that we have. We need to work on that. Those are the two big ones left, the ports and, you know, shipping centers, you know, Inland Empire and elsewhere. Right. And we're working on that. We're going to do that. And we're going to make sure when we tell people, corporations and individuals to do the right thing, we want to make sure that there's funds available, there's subsidies available so they can do that without being harmed financially. That's key to it. We learned years ago, we... We tell you you've got to stop using perchloroethylene, you know, for your dry cleaning thing. Stop that by such and such a date. Different dry cleaners had different mandates and what have you. Well, you have to have a pot of money available to help these people, government money, which is available through taxes, that people will be able to buy the right kind of equipment so they can have a, an economically viable dry cleaner and use the non-perk, you know, system. And so that's what we learned over the years. We want you truckers to have cleaner trucks. How this guy, this independent trucker, going to afford to get a cleaner truck? He can't afford that. Right. You have to have pots of money available. It has to be real-world stuff, economically viable stuff, so the people can do it. The small companies can do it. The big companies can do it. You want to help the big companies, too. You want to help everybody to do the right thing. So we've learned over the years, but that's a big success story, what we did with L.A. Air. And we have a healthy economy in the L.A. area. California is doing very well. 
economically. You know, the, the economy is thriving in California. So we're proving that you can have a healthy environment and a healthy economy. And we lead the nation. California leads the nation with we, the environment. We do. We have for years and other ways before we got into some of the more interesting technologies that we have now back in the 70s. Jerry Brown in his first incarnation as governor and many other leaders in the California Senate and Assembly said, we're going to make this state more energy efficient, more energy efficient. This is what we want to do. This is the late 70s I started doing that. And here's the curve. I'm holding up my hand for our listeners at like a, you know, 20 degree angle off horizontal. And this is the way it is for the nation. And everybody, the per capita energy use, you know, went up for everybody. People got more computers and big screen TVs and blow dryers and everything over the years since the 70s. People just started to get more and more electronic stuff. So our per capita energy use for Every state in the nation is like this curve that I'm holding my hand in a pretty steep fashion. Ours is nearly flat in California, nearly flat. I'm holding my hand almost horizontal. Why? Because we promoted energy efficiency. That's something that we did. Our per capita energy use since the 70s has only gone up slightly with all the new big screen TVs we bought, all the cell phone chargers, all the new stuff that people didn't have in their life just a short time ago. We've done that. So that's, that's been a model for the nation and the world, and we need to continue that kind of leadership. And we have that kind of leadership in the form of Gavin Newsom and the California Assembly and Senate, and they continue to do the right thing. And once again, I can't say it enough. Listen to me. This is the most important thing I'll say. The economy has been thriving because of it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, for really making it very clear and doing like a recap of how far we've come since 1970 because – we have all kinds of listeners, and some of them may not be aware of not only how long you've been at this as an activist, environmental activist, but how, how far we've come and how much work has been done, such tremendous amount of work, as you said, into three categories, legislative category with government and all the, the laws and ordinances passed, uh, corporate responsibility and companies um, either being uh, sort of confronted with or just doing it voluntarily to change the way they do business. And then, of course, personal responsibility and people like you and others educating us, the public, uh, all the changes that we can make in our lives um, to change and, and, and change the trajectory. And we're in such a great place because of that. So there's so much to celebrate on that front. There is, and there's more that I'm going to cite, more success stories if you'll allow me. Absolutely. The, the Santa Barbara oil spill was a horrible thing that happened in 1969. That got everybody's attention about the cost of oil, the cost to the environment of oil using fossil fuels and what have you. And that sadly is a, those kind of oil spills from oil derricks and what have you and other kinds of spills from pipelines are a fairly regular occurrence. Just handling something like oil, you know, Pipes tend to leak. Accidents happen. There's human error. Pipes fail. Derrick equipment fails. And you have what you have. So that got people involved. It happened in 69. That, I believe, led to the first Earth Day in 1970. Another thing that led to the first Earth Day was those beautiful Hasselblad pictures. This is before digital cameras. Two and a half by two and a half inch negative. This beautiful photograph of the Earth from the moon. This big wow. blue marble in the distance, an image that we use to this day for like the Earth Day flags and what have you. This beautiful thing, and Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin were there, and I think Buzz took those pictures. But you can see that Earth. People started to think it as a, as a whole, as a living entity, you know, that it was part of the web of life that connects us all. Right. People started to think in those terms, and that was very powerful. That was 69 also. So by the time 1970 came around, people really wanted to do things. But there's another story I want to cite that happened in the 60s. And my, Bob, my friend Bobby Kennedy Jr. tells this story. And it happened at the uh, Hudson River. The Hudson River was so polluted, you could no longer eat the fish. This is in the 60s. It had gotten so bad. And I remember wow. these days. I lived out in Long Island part of that time. And I remember how bad the Hudson River was. And these Vietnam veterans came back from serving our country in the 60s, and they could not return to their line of work. They were unemployed. They were in the unemployment lines, and they did not want to be unemployed. They wanted to do their line of work, a line of work their grandparents had done, their great-grandparents had done. Going back to the Dutch settlers, they had done this line of work. That work was fishing. They could no longer fish. They served our country. They were fishermen, went off to serve in the war, came back, couldn't do it. They were unemployed. 
and they were so upset. They were talking about, I guess it's a form of eco-terrorism. They're going to put dynamite on a raft and put it into the, they met at American Legion Hall. They're going to put it into this outfall pipe of Penn Central and blow up the pipe so it would back up into Penn Central's equipment and what have you, and they, they would teach them a lesson that we're going to do this. Fortunately, there was another radical in the room from a radical publication called Field and Stream, and this guy's name was Bob Boyle, and he said, I've got another idea. I know you're discussing putting dynamite in a raft. Let's put a flag on that play for a second. Instead of breaking the law, how about enforcing the laws? It looked at him like he was crazy because it's the 60s, Vic. There's no Clean Air Act then. Right. So what law are you talking about? He says there's a Safe Harbors and Rivers Act, and uh, if you if we sue them in court and do it legally and and we're successful, we get to keep half the bounty for that lawsuit, and we can build and sue the other polluters of the Hudson River and eventually clean up the river. And that's exactly what they did. Bob Boyle was that writer from Field and Stream. Pete Seeger got involved, the wonderful Pete Seeger. John Cronin got involved, Lady Bobby Kennedy. Now it's a productive waterway again. You can eat the fish. It's one of the healthiest waterways in the Northeast. What a great story. The Cuyahoga River caught fire. Let's talk about rivers a little longer. Hold your thought. At yes. My apologies. Let's take a um, station break for a second. I, I want to remind our listeners that this is Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post, and you're listening to a very in-depth and fascinating interview with actor, activist, and environmentalist Ed Begley Jr. on KPFK. Hey, everybody, this is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman, host of the California Solartopia Show, which airs 6.30 p.m. on Thursdays here at KPFK. We deal with all the issues of the environment here in L.A. County, Bayona Wetlands, Porter Ranch, Diablo Canyon, San Onofre, going solar, you name it, we do it, the California Sycamore Tree in Santa Monica. California Solartopia is your lifeline to the environment here in L.A. County. Come hear us 6.30 p.m. Thursday evening on KPFK. I am Harvey Sluggo Wasserman and listen buddy, no nukes. See you in Solartopia. We have with us a very special guest, uh, actor, activist, environmentalist Ed Begley Jr. talking about the environmental movement in general but as well um, as the recent developments and gains um, that we've had. So Ed and I are chatting about that, and so Ed, you've been—you told us a very uh, interesting story about uh, the Vietnam vets that were coming back, trying to seek work in fishing, and and how that was handled through legislation and uh, making sure that the laws are enforced. Exactly, they were successful with that, and there's another success story, if you will, a horrible story, but there's a happy ending to this one. That is the Cuyahoga River, outside Cleveland. It caught fire in the, in the late 60s, 1969. That was a thing like the Santa Barbara oil spill that got my attention. Wait a minute, we got rivers catching fire? I don't know about you, Vic, but I think it's a bad sign when rivers catch fire. Right. Rivers are supposed to put out fires. It's like the river sticks, you know, from you know, in hell or something in Hades uh, if a river's on fire. So they cleaned up with the Clean Air Act signed by another environmental radical. I keep citing these environmental radicals. An environmental radical by the name of Richard Nixon signed the Clean Water Act. Reluctantly, he vetoed hmm. it at first, but then he, there was so much support behind it in the House, the Senate, that he signed it the second time. He signed the Clean Air Act right away without vetoing it. So because of that, that river no longer catches fire. It's also a productive, healthy river. The Great Lakes were poisoned and toxic from all the mercury-intensive paper-making processes, all these phosphates we're putting out in the Great Lakes. We had many areas of the Great Lakes that were dead. They've rebounded. Life has come back there, too. Wow. A global problem. Let's, ju- let's not just talk about the United States and these huge successes we've had here, and we've had many. Globally, we realized in the late 60s, sorry, in the, uh, we realized a bit in the 70s, we really knew it by the late 80s that we had a problem with ozone depletion, right. with ozone hole being so depleted, it was growing and growing. It was going to cause a real problem. They had an increased uh, level of skin cancers in South America, where it was the most prominent. It was worse over the southern hemisphere than it was the northern hemisphere, that ozone depletion. And they and I went to Australia. I said, is this something the press is just trying to scare us with in the States? Do you really? And I talked to lifeguards and people, the beaches uh, at Kulangata and near Brisbane and what have you. 
to talk to people in Australia about it. It's absolutely, it's real. you got to slip, slap, sl- what would they say? Slip on a shirt, slap on some sunscreen, uh-huh. and slip on a hat or something. They had a little three-word kind of ditty that they had when adults and kids went to the beach. You had to do that. Put on sunscreen, a hat, and a shirt right? because of ozone depletion. They talked about banning CFCs because of it. It was very clear there was a chemical signature up in the atmosphere that made it crystal clear like a smoking gun on a table that it was CFCs that were doing it. Chemically, they knew it. The experts knew it. They said it. And people said, but we'd love to help out with the ozone hole. The same thing they said about smog. We can't afford to do it. You won't ever be able to buy a refrigerator again. You won't ever be able to buy an air conditioner. It'll be too expensive. How will you ever do that? It won't be possible to make an air conditioner or refrigerator. Of course, as you probably noticed, Vic, you can buy an air conditioner to this day. Right. There was no interruption in the supply of air conditioners and refrigerators. They just said no more CFCs. There'll be another chemical that we'll use, and it will keep, you know, enable us to keep a box cool or a house cool, and it's going to be fine. It won't cost that much more. That's exactly what they did. Wow. They banned it, and that hole is not getting bigger. It is stabilized, and it's headed in the right direction. We did that. It's a global problem that we attacked because we had a mind to do it. Big companies, a company back when it was uh, IT&T, before they have had many incarnations since, but the head of the company, down to all the people just working in the factory, said, we're going to try to find some way to eliminate CFCs from our operation. They did not make refrigerators. They did not make air conditioners. They made circuit boards and what have you, switching equipment for telecommunications. They said, and they would clean the circuit boards with CFCs. That's the way you did it. Just There was no other way other than CFCs to clean the circuit boards. Right. They found another way, of course, to do it. I'm going to take less salary or whatever we need to do. We're going to take hit as a corporation. We're going to do this. They wound up save, saving $800,000 by eliminating, eliminating CFCs because they're expensive. Before they banned them, this is while well, they were still able, you could buy them legally. So there's always a silver lining in these things. By making our homes and offices more energy efficient, we can save money. And that's the key. That's what I've done since 1970. I've done it to do the right thing environmentally, but also at each turn, everything that I did, I was a broken, struggling actor in 1970. I couldn't afford solar panels or fancy electric cars. I could afford a cheap electric car, and I could afford other things that I did, a bicycle and a bus pass, but I couldn't afford the fancy stuff. I did that stuff. At each turn, Vic, I saved money. Good for the economy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Those are those are really great stories that sometimes we miss and we or if we've known we kind of forget those huge gains that have been made through the last few decades. Um I wanna uh, sort of go over a couple of notes that I made about um things that are happening. For example, I mentioned it briefly about the protests that are happening uh, weekly, uh, with uh, celebrities as yourself being you know, arrested, Jane Fonda and uh, Ted Danson and Sam Waterston, and all of that. And how do you see that and reflect that? And uh, you know your your opinion about benefits of that and the exposure that it gets. I think it's their heroes are all heroes of mine, Sam and Ted and Jane and all of them to do that. Likewise with Bill McKibben and Greta Thunberg and all these people that are protesting the way that they are. Jane has uh, emailed me and asked me to come and be part of that. I'm waiting. I'm going to try to do a Greta and get cross-country in a green fashion. I'm not going to just fly there. So that's important to me. I, I intend to come and uh, protest with her and with all of them, but I want to wow. make sure I get there in a green fashion. So stay tuned with that. Let's see how I do. I have a plan. Let's see if huh. I can put it all together and get back east. I'm I'm 70 now, so I can't ride my bike cross-country, certainly not in the wintertime, but I have another plan. Let's see if I pull it off, and I'll report back to you, Vic, but I intend to go there and be part of that because we need to make our voices heard, certainly at this yeah. time in history with everything that's going on with the environment and many other things. You can't just sit idly by and go, well, I hope this works out. There's a time to take to the streets, and I've been part of the Science March and many other marches that we've had downtown L.A. and elsewhere, and so we need to gather when we need to as a group, as a large group, and make sure that people know how many of us there are out there that care about these things and want to do something and have a plan, a workable plan, to do things in a different way. That's the key thing. You have to have a good plan in mind, and uh, Lord knows we do. Yeah, and that, I wish I wish I can be there to see that, you and Greta in, uh, in D.C. That would be fantastic. 
I'm hoping, uh, so I hoping hope that works out. Too. Works out. I also have some other things that I've been reading about. Um, one of them being that there's further evidence of decline of fossil fuel era. The Ford Motor Company announced last week that it was building the largest network of electric vehicles, uh, vehicle chargers in the U.S., taking the title from EV leader Tesla. Uh, I don't know if you heard about that, but I did. I is... think that's very good news. I love the competition that this lets people keep upping the ante, and then Elon right. says, "No, I'm going to make more than you," and Ford says, "No, I'm going to make more, make more than you," and VW says, "We have to buy the mandate because of the lawsuit from the way we jimmied with the results on." pollution, we're going to do more than the two of you put together. Let right. them have a wonderful competition. I couldn't be happier because the more infant. And keep in mind, the basic pipeline is there already, if you will, not the oil pipeline. That's certainly there. But the pipeline for electricity is everywhere. It's in these walls I'm pointing at right now. It's underneath us. It's above our heads. There's electric uh, service nearly everywhere in this country. And where there isn't, you can put in solar panels and create it, put in solar panels and a power wall. I I have both. I have a nine kilowatt solar system and I have a Tesla power wall. It's working so well, I'm going to get a second, perhaps a third. So I spend even less time on the grid. Keep in mind, you have op opportunities nowadays, like with the Department of Water Power and Power here in L.A. I occasionally have to buy some grid power because we have several electric cars, not just one charging at home. When I did that, it was beyond the scope of my nine kilowatt system. So I bought a green power plant from L.A. Let me make it crystal clear what this power plant is and what it isn't. What it is not is the old kind of plan we had in the 90s. It was very well-intentioned, and it was, you know, kind of a feel-good thing. People took title to an existing hydro plant in Idaho, let's say. They bought it. Some energy company, Green Energy Company X, said, I'm going to buy this Idaho power plant, so now this is my power, and I'm going to sell it to people, and so you can buy green power in this way. But what's changed, Vic? Nothing's changed. That power plant, that green hydro plant, has been in operation since the 50s. What, there's nothing new happening. The good plans, like Native Energy and others, TerraPass also does this. They buy and erect, create new wind, solar, or green hydro, small-scale hydro, wind, solar, geothermal, they do, new and put new electrons into the grid for every electron that you buy with your green power plan. Now, that's a difference, and that's what right. the Department of Water and Power does. They have a green power plan, and they put it directly into the Department of Water and Power, the very grid that you get. People say, well, that's off there in the desert, so really, are you still using it? When you go put $300 in your bank in cash, and then a week later you take 300 out of the ATM, you don't expect them to be the same exact 20s, but it's right. a real cash transaction. That's what these green power plants are. It's not hooked up to my house. They don't run a, a line from a, power, you know, a wind turbine in my yard to the house, but it is connected to the same grid. So that's the thing. If you have a power plant, uh, you, know, you have a power plan that is not – you know, just a feel-good plan that is a real new electrons going into the grid, then you're actually accomplishing something, and that's what you need to do. That's that's a very interesting information that I, even I didn't know about, that you're able to do that. So thank you for that. I think a lot of listeners would be interested to learn about that. And also at Edison, you can buy green power. Also uh, PG&E, I think, has a green power program. Nearly all the utilities in the nation, there's very few. It's a much shorter list to tell you the people that do not have a green power program. You, you pay extra for it. Right. But what better way to put your money? For me, it cost me another $30 a month or something right. to have a green power plan. I'm happy to pay it because my electric bill is so low anyway, and I'm not buying gasoline at the pump. Now that Rochelle has a plug-in car herself, we've got two cars charging at the house. And so, uh, you know— it's, it's just less money. You're spending less at the gasoline pump, and you're spending more, uh, you know, a lower amount, but you're doing a greener thing right. by buying this green power program. Wow. Thank you for that, too. So I was reading that an Indian architect has created uh, an algae wall to purify polluted water without um, harmful chemicals. I thought that was really interesting. His name is uh, Shanil Malik. He's a Bartlett uh, doctoral candidate, has created uh, INDUS, a module wall system that's created to clean water polluted using dyes and chemicals with the help of ceramic tiles and algae. 
I would love to see that. Right. How I know it's possible to to uh, clean up water that's polluted, to take not just gray water, but to take even what they call black water, which is sewer water. You can clean it up and make it, you know, you can make it drinkable by right. the time you're done with it. So uh, it's wonderful technology. I'd love to see this technology. That sounds great. I'm really excited to hear that. The more of that, the better. My yeah. friend Howard Lachowski did that. He had a version of that years ago. He had a bunch of water hyacinths and other you know, wood chips and this and that and all these, they were all organic processes, but he was able to take actual effluent, you know, sewer water from a home and have it turned clean by the end of the pipeline, which is what they do also in a large scale at something called uh, the, um, what do you call it, the Tillman plant here in the San Fernando Valley. They take polluted water from, you know, the San Fernando Valley and they run through a system. By the time it comes out, the, uh, the tap at the end, it's pretty clean. They say you can drink it. I, I never have, but uh, it's supposed to be very clean water. You can certainly use it for irrigation, you know, for different, uh, at different parts of L.A. Parks and Rec use that water uh, for irrigation, and it's, it's pretty damn clean. Wow. In my own home, I have a gray water system that works very well. It flows by gravity from the tub and the shower right down to a bunch of fruit trees that I have. And that works very, very well. Then I have a rainwater system as well, a 10,000-gallon rainwater tank buried underground. So all that very clean rainwater goes down into the tank, and you can use that for irrigation as well. You don't want to drink it untreated because you could have squirrels or birds on your roof. You don't want to get sick from that. But you can certainly in a pinch. You could put it in a solar oven and get it up to, you know, 200-some-odd degrees. And then you could put it through a Brita filter. It would be perfectly safe water by just— doing those additional treatments to it. But you can use it, as I do every day, in irrigation without having to do anything to it. It's just rainwater. Wow. That's fantastic. So, um, Ed, what current ongoing, whether it's at the city level or state level or just, um, just in general, what are some of the current things that we should look out for and pay attention to, positive, uh, positive things that are coming down the pipeline, if you will? Well, a big challenge that we have right now, Washington is fighting us on our clean vehicle laws. We've been working with uh, Quebec, working with the Canadians on a partnership to adopt some of the same rules. They're going to adopt the same rules that we are about clean, clean vehicles. And puzzling though it may be, the EPA is suing California saying we're out of line to be negotiating with a foreign country to make their air and ours cleaner. That's very odd, but uh, that's what they're doing. The head of the EPA now is a man that was a coal lobbyist for much of his life, so I guess it solves that puzzle a certain amount when you think of who the players are nowadays at EPA. But keep in mind, that's not the sum total of what the EPA is. There's many, many, the vast majority of people working at EPA are wonderful scientists and, uh, you know, workers, uh, people who are enforcing clean air air rules around the country, other clean water rules around the country. They're heroic people that are working in difficult conditions right now with some leadership that I believe and they believe is misguided. But there's wonderful people at the EPA working right now trying to clean up our air who don't think that's a good idea to battle with California on these clean air regulations. But that's something we should all keep an eye on what's going to happen in our, our disagreement with Washington about how clean cars can be. And keep in mind, the threshold is not that high. I think they're talking about making cars to get the clean car standard. The, the mileage standard, I think, is like 40-some-odd miles per gallon. You've been able to buy a Prius for years that gets 40-some-odd miles per gallon easy, indeed 50-something. I've gotten 50-some-odd miles per gallon regularly with a Prius, you know, just going in the slow lane and what have you and driving at a, an appropriate speed. So these cars are available today and have been available for a while, these kinds of cars. But uh, some of the car makers for a while sided with us and not with Washington. Now, one by one, I think they're flipping and kind of siding with the administration on the clean air regulations for cars. So I think that's a mistake. I think we should all keep an eye on that and make sure we have uh, clean cars available for people, and uh, it'll only improve our air quality. And, you know, there's a health care cost 
to doing nothing, you know, with emphysema, uh, asthma, lots of other problems. So we have to keep an eye on that. Oh, thank you for that. Just for listeners who are just joining us now, uh, you are listening to KPFK Public Radio 90.7 FM, and this is Thanksgiving week. So happy Thanksgiving. And we're doing a special show um, about everything that's right and everything that is working well uh, in the environmental movement and green living and being eco-friendly. And we have a, our distinguished guest today, Ed Begley Jr., actor, activist, environmentalist, uh, as a lot, lot of people would agree, environment's best friend. And he's <laughs> been teaching us, informing us about all that's been done since 1969, 1970, uh, that has made California uh, the leading state in the country on the environmental front and all that has been achieved uh, it's a lot for me to even summarize, but Ed has been uh, telling us um, a lot of it diligently. And uh, we were just talking about things that we should look out for and pay attention to currently that's circulating, whether it's at our state level or, or Washington or even local level. You know, we have uh, the straw ban that's sort of a developing story. We've had uh, the plastic bag ban that... Uh, uh, Council Councilman uh, Paul Coretz uh, spearheaded. Hero, I love Paul. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, Ed, what what more can we can listeners pay attention to um, and follow and be a part of, perhaps to you know help out? Well, there's been many bills, and these bills continue to be put forward by Paul Coretz and others to to ban. And as best we can, cut down on uh, single-use plastic because there's a price to be paid for that. And we're seeing the price now. I'm old enough. I'm 70 now, Vic. I remember a world when you would go to the store, any kind of store, you got a pack of gum or a greeting card. They didn't put it in a plastic bag. Right. And somehow I got through life without having a plastic bag for every stick of gum and greeting card. And throw away this and throw And there were paper straws when I was young, of course. And they worked fine for us. We're going back to that, thank God. We're getting away from some of the single-use plastic because we see the cost of that behavior. Marine mammals, fish, you know, uh, all kinds of wildlife, birds are being harmed and killed by these, you know, pieces of plastic that they th mistake for food. It looks like squid. It looks like something they can eat, and they eat it, and they perish a horrible, painful death. Right. So it's just not necessary. Years ago, I stopped using metal water bottles. You can see, here's my little metal water bottle right here. Rather than have a plastic water bottle, I got this metal one. I started doing that years ago. I stopped taking plastic bags at the store years ago. I've had canvas bags since the 70s. It's metal water bottle for decades. Metal straw, you know, on and on. There's ways to stay away from single-use plastic, and we need to as best we can do them. Right. And... Uh, with the help of legislation so that restaurants ha have been given some motivation to have a choice to e have either no straw or a paper straw. You know, uh, I mean, I think that's the way we need to go. People think it's infringing on their rights to take away the straws. <laughs> I don't understand that. It's a right I lived with, you know, as many people did before me my whole young life. I didn't feel the need to have a plastic straw. I got along fine without them. So we can go back to that. And I want to address something else that I've kind of danced around a bit. People regularly say to me, and I completely understand when they say it, I can't afford a Nissan Leaf like you drive. I can't afford nine kilowatts of solar like you have on your roof. I can't, and they make a list of things. I say to them, absolutely correct. I understand. Neither could I when I started. You don't run up Mount Everest. You get to base camp and you get acclimated, acclimated, and you only climb as high as you can. Not everybody makes it to the summit. Sure. With a, an electric, a fancy electric car and a nine kilowatts of solar on the roof. But what can you do? Can you climb part way up? Of course, anybody can make some sort of ascent to a certain level. Energy efficient light bulbs, energy saving thermostat, you know, weather stripping around your doors and windows. Ride a bike when weather and fitness permit. Take public transportation if it's available near you. Home gardening, home composting. You don't have a piece of dirt to call your own to home garden or home compost, get part of a community garden. 
every single thing in that list I just said, Vic, yep. is cheap, accessible to anybody. The lowest income people, everybody can do those things. Again, Absolutely. keep in mind, I said when weather and fitness permit for people who are confined to a wheelchair aren't going to ride in a bicycle. Sure. When, and I said, you know, public transportation, if it's available near you, if you're in the middle of a farm in Nebraska, you don't have a bus pulling up to your, you know, your front door, your, your st- side street. So these are the kinds of things we need to do that will make a huge difference. Again, paired with those two important legs of the table that keep it from being wobbly, good legislation and corporate responsibility. And with those three powerful tools, we can change the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's doing what we can and to the best of our abilities and every little bit helps, you know, starting with the simplest thing like plastic bags at supermarkets. It's not that hard. Or refusing plastic uh, straws and asking for a paper straw or, um, you know, just changing the way we live a little bit. Not everyone has to be uh, the Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> God <laughs> the, help the us. Pinnacle, I don't know we need many more of me. The pinnacle of, of uh, <laughs> environmental movement and uh, green living. So There's people doing more than me. I want to be clear. The Greta Thunbergs of the world and what have you. There's lots of other people whose names we know like Greta and whose, name, whose names we do not know that have a lower carbon footprint than me, that do more than me, are more active than me out there in the front trenches. So I bow my head to them. I salute them, and I'm proud to know them. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so let's go back to you specifically. Like, Tell us about uh, your own projects, and it doesn't have to be about the environment. I just we, We'd love to know what you're up to these days. I'm doing a TV show called Bless This Mess. It's a mm-hmm. funny show on ABC, and I enjoy doing that. It uh, kind of celebrates people in the heartland which is wonderful. It's about a New York couple that decide to leave the rat race of New York and move out to the country and live the uh, the good life there, and they're going to farm, but they don't know much about it. They don't know much about farming. As was the case with me, when I was quite young, I was going to move to Colorado. I was going to move to the country, and I'm going to live off the land. And I moved to Colorado. I moved to Boulder, Colorado. I was going to yeah. live off the land. Of course, they have a winter there that's a little more severe than L.A. winter. They have snow <laughs> right. and what have you. And I quickly learned... My friend, Ed Bottoms, took me up to see his friend. I can't remember his name. He took me up to this, excuse me, this cabin where this guy lived that actually did really live off the land. We were living in Boulder, so we weren't living off the land. We were living in a little basement walk-down thing, and we you know, had pretty low-carbon footprint, but we were not living off the land. This guy was, and he, he was not a vegetarian like I was. He, he started as one, but he had to go shoot some deer and get the venison to make it through the winter. He had he was missing a pinky on his right hand because a, a chainsaw had had a kickback and cut off his little finger. Wow. You know, he's cutting up wood to keep warm, to survive through the winter. And I realized this living off the land looks seems a little harder than I envisioned it. You know, it's it can be kind of hard. So uh, they we deal with that issue, which can be serious and can be also quite funny with people trying to live off the land that don't have a clue about it. But um, it's a lovely show called Bless This Mess. It's on Tuesdays on ABC. And that show has enabled me to have the uh, freedom of time and what have you and other resources to be active with lots of other environmental boards and to do things. So I'm very grateful for this show to give me the wherewithal to do some things that I want to do. Fantastic. What are some of those environmental groups that we work with currently? I've been working with the Coalition for Clean Air for years, a wonderful organization. They do great work. I'm on the advisory board of the Union of Concerned Scientists. It's the greatest resource that we have. These are more than half the living Nobel laureates, people with PhD after the name, that know about electricity. They know about weather. They know about alternative energy. They know about hydrology. They know about species loss, you know, extinction, what have you, how our, our... flora and fauna are doing experts so that's the thing people regularly say to me ed you're just an actor just shut up and do your job and leave us alone with your opinions how can you do that vic if i'm an actor i'm supposed to go out on stage before an audience and do a song and dance but the fire marshal has stopped me before i go out on stage to do my song and dance tapped me on the shoulder and said ed i'm sorry you have to tell the audience 
down in the basement. There's a fire smolding. Uh, we're going to try to get it under control. Don't panic people, but just tell them to, in an orderly fashion, leave row by row. Okay, thanks for telling me that, Mr. Fire Marshal. Yeah. Hey there, da-da-da-da-da. I can't go out there and do a song and dance. Right. I've been given this information. The fire marshal has told me there's a problem. The yeah. fire marshal is the union of concerned scientists. Those are the people. Right analogy. The, yeah. And so having gotten that information, I attempt to share it in a clear fashion. I have a keen interest and love of science. And, uh, and so uh, I, I do that. So that's another group, Union of Concerned Scientists, Coalition for Clean Air, the Thoreau Institute, and uh, also part of that group. It's called the Walden Woods Project as well. Don Henley, my dear friend, Don Henley got me involved years ago trying to preserve land in and around Walden Woods where Thoreau wrote and walked and lived. We have the greatest collection of his manuscripts and writings and what have you, all temperature and humidity controlled, and uh, 100-some-odd acres that we've preserved. So that's a big success for Don Henley and, to a lesser extent, me. Uh, the F Sequoia Forest Keeper, I'm on that board. Uh, I've been on, oh, gosh, I'm on so many boards, I'm going to bore you to tears. But I'm on a lot of boards. I try to focus and do what I can. I was on the board of the Midnight Mission for years. That's not an environmental issue, really. But in Important other ways, one. it's part of the ecosystem to help those people downtown L.A. to get a meal, to get some shelter, Absolutely. and to get some help if they're open to it. And so that's what we do at the Midnight Mission. So I try to help in every way I can. And there's much to be done, as you know, in many different areas. And the environment is just one of them. Yeah, a while back when I was looking you up and wanted to know the nonprofits and charities and boards that you were you belonged to, the list was so long I had to copy-paste <laughs> this entire big thing. So, uh, But I wanted listeners to hear from you that at least the top ones that are important that people should check out and go to their website and seek them out um, – Learn about what they do and um, and be you know get involved to whatever degree they want to get involved. Even though I'm not on the board, I must give a shout out to to Oceana, my dear friend Ted Danson has been involved with that group for years. I was on the board of the American Oceans Campaign when it was in that incarnation. Great group, Oceana, the NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council. Not on their board. Work with them. Love them. They're the greatest. Um, Center for Biological Diversity, fantastic organization. Hold on a second. My daughter, Amanda Begley, my green hero, my heroine, she is the greatest uh, eco-goddess. Amanda, she works at the Climate Center up in Santa Rosa, California. Great organization. The Climate Three, Center, okay. Yeah, Climate Center in Santa Rosa, California. Amanda Begley works there. Bill McKibben and 350.org. Incredible organization doing the Lord's work out there every day. So I work with those organizations and many others, and I'm proud to know them. Fantastic. So listeners... You have, you have all the help. You could get all the names. So check them out. Get involved wherever and whenever you can. Uh, that's really important um, to have those names out there, all the, the major organizations that are doing the important work. It, it, takes, a lot, it takes a lot of money and energy and uh, tenacity to do some of the work that, that these organizations are doing. And Ed, uh, mention your own website and your own informational it's a it's a little bit of when i go on your website it, i feel like it's embodiment of everything thank you uh, it's something that i do with my wonderful wife rochelle carson rochelle and i have done a lot of green endeavors over the years we had a show on that was called living with ed for two years on home and garden then one year on planet green and that was a, a very effective show i tried to do environmental shows before and they didn't do well until Rochelle came along because she got to provide the voice of every man, every woman about a certain amount of skepticism about some of my well-intentioned ideas that I did that sometimes weren't very attractive, that weren't aesthetically pleasing. So she was able to bring some style and a flash to it. And so that show did well because of her. And now we live in a lead platinum house because of her. I never wanted to move. I was very happy in my little 1,700 square foot house I lived in for 26 years, but she had other plans for me. And so we moved to this new house, and our bills are lower than they were in the smaller house. In this larger house, they're lower there because of good technology. Right. We have nine kilowatts of solar, as I said. We have 12-inch thick walls. We have a gray water system, a rainwater system, all Lutron-controlled switching equipment, dimmers for the lights. Uh, the wood on the floor is all recycled oak, reclaimed and recycled oak. Uh, we have 
the most energy efficient heating and air units and we need very little help from heating or air because the walls are 12 inches thick. All the glass is double pane. Everything about the house is green. It got a lead platinum status and it looks gorgeous. So people realize it doesn't have to be a sacrifice. If you want style, you can have that and you can have it in a green fashion. All the stuff is hidden in the walls, up on the roof. You don't see any of it. It doesn't distract. I never mind the look of solar panels in my old house. You can see them from the front yard, from any place. I didn't mind the look of them, but others don't like the look of them, and you can hide them so they look attractive. You can buy solar shingles nowadays that will give you the solar panels that you need. Your roof becomes a solar panel, so there's lots of ways to do it. And uh, it's called edbegley.com is one way to get there. Easy to remember, edbegley.com. The other one is... um, Oh, God. Let me Begley think. Living. Begley Living. Thank you. I forgot the my wife's website. Begley Living. That's kind of her version of things. Yes. And it's great. I've embraced that. And so either both roads lead to the same place, yeah. which is Begley Living now. It gets to show uh, all the stuff that you can do that's stylish and energy efficient and indeed lead platinum rated. It's a great website. So edbegley.com or begleyliving.com. And I want to thank Ed Begley Jr. for being our guest today. This is Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving. This is Thanksgiving week. We're very happy to bring you an uplifting program about all that's good and all that's positive and uh, great developments uh, on the environmental front. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, listeners. This is KPFK Public Radio 90.7 FM. KPFK, celebrating the season with thanks. Enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday weekend with some special programming on KPFK. On Thursday, November 28th, Thanksgiving Day at 1 p.m., listen to a mother-daughter conversation about issues, culture, and family with Kitchen Conversations. At 2 p.m., dive into technology with the Digital Village. At 3 p.m., explore the hidden history of the host's founding father's ancestry and an open apology for deeds of the past with secrets and shadows. Young people discuss issues, music, and interviews with Soul Rebel at 4. Special Thanksgiving programming on your favorite station. Go to kpfk.org forward slash support and give what you can. Happy Thanksgiving and thank you for listening to 90.7 KPFK and kpfk.org. KPFK invites you to join Maggie LaPique on Sunday, December 1st from 5 to 6 p.m. for the latest edition of Rock Profiles. Maggie will open up and explore the new Jimi Hendrix box set, Songs for Groovy Children. This phenomenal set completely documents for the first time the debut performances at the famed Fillmore East of Hendrix's Band of Gypsies. And Maggie's extremely special guest for the hour will be Hendrix archivist and producer John McDermott and Jimmy's celebrated sound engineer, Eddie Kramer. That's Rock Profiles with Maggie LaPique, Sunday, December 1st, from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles and online at kpfk.org. Hi, this is Shepard Ferry, and you're listening to KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. This is People Powered Radio.
From KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, the New York Times dropped a bombshell 